very much. Um, we'll now move on to our final round of speeches for the evening, um, starting with Professor Eric Kaufman. Uh, Eric Kaufman is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and is a specialist on Orangism in Northern Ireland, nationalism, political democracy, and religious democracy. Uh, he's authored a number of books and reports, including Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, The Orange Order, and The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America. Um, he's also written for quite a number of magazines in foreign policy. Uh, Eric, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, Iman. And uh, I was very inspired by the, the speeches about what's going on in China because I think it's, it's – I was born in Hong Kong, so that's got a resonance. But in addition, I think we need periodically to be reminded um, by people who are struggling for their freedom about the value of free speech because I fear we are losing that tradition slowly. Um, in his dystopic novel, 1984, George Orwell wrote about a totalitarian nightmare characterized by systematic thought control, which is something that Hannah Arendt and others who talked about totalitarianism mentioned as a feature of these regimes. For Orwell, quote, in the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it, not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was denied. For after all, how do we know that two and two make four? How indeed? If this, something, if this is a political concept rather than an empirical or scientific concept, then maybe two and two don't make four. How ironic in this context then, that in response to a post by the writer James Lindsay asserting that two plus two equals four, there was substantial pushback from identity politics activists. As Brittany Marshall, for example, wrote, the idea of two plus two equaling four is cultural and because of Western imperialism and colonization. So really, in many ways, much of what Orwell prophesied seems to be coming to pass even in Western societies. Let's look at a number of Orwell's concepts from the book Newspeak, the idea of inventing new words which direct how we think about the world, think about uh, a new terms such as Latin X, which is the approved way of speaking about Latino Americans. Even though we know from surveys that 98% of Latinos in America do not identify with the term Latin X, and yet this is something that has been decreed by the language commissars. Or perhaps the University of California's list of microaggressions, which includes, quote unquote, I don't notice people's race, or America is a land of opportunity. And yet, when surveyed, 70 to 80 percent of black and Hispanic Americans do not find these terms or these phrases offensive. And yet, somehow, these are being decreed by an authority that that is the way we have to use words. So newspeak is important. But also, another aspect that Orwell drew attention to was the political rather than the empirical or scientific definition of words. Words like racism, transphobia, hate speech, safety, and bullying have been subject to inflation and distortion. Words now, those words are now given political meaning rather than being based on empirical reality. In addition to newspeak, we have the concept of thought crime, the idea that it's not enough to be judged for your actions or your words, but indeed you can be guilty for what you're thinking or even thinking subconsciously. And so we come to unconscious bias training, which with its use of the now discredited implicit associations test. This is, the theory behind this is that you can be guilty not just for what you do and for the actions that you undertake, but for the things that you think. 
not only consciously, but subconsciously. You are responsible for things that your subconscious is doing. Doublethink, Orwell referred to doublethink as this idea of believing, being compelled to believe something you know is not true. So if you know you're not a racist, you still have to admit you're a racist. If you know you don't have white privilege, you still have to admit to that or else you are upholding the system of white privilege, according to the critical race theorist Ibram Kendi. And then we come to the Ministry of Truth. Now, we don't have a Ministry of Truth, a government that tells us, throws us in jail for, for thinking the wrong things. But if Kendi gets his way, the United States would have a constitutional amendment that would create the new Department of Anti-Racism with, in his words, quote, empowered with discipline, disciplinary tools to enforce the new orthodoxy and, and, and to enforce um, perfect racial equality across all of government. <coughs> we have also got a decentered system of ministry of truths, if you like, in the new equity and diversity offices in universities, particularly in America, in some of the mission statements and the diversity statements that faculty are being compelled to sign before they are allowed to go forward for jobs. We have the police now pursuing people using expanded definitions of terms such as hate or nonviolent ex extremism. We have a, a new hate crime bill being drafted in Scotland, and we have a new UK hate crime white paper, all of which define terms such as disinformation, offense, very nebulously in ways which mm -hmm. political activists will be able to exploit so that the police will knock on your door for things that you post on social mm -hmm. media, even if they are not even remotely, according to the definitions that we have come to expect, uh, offensive or, or do not lead to uh, any kind of violence. Uh, in my country, where I'm from, Canada, perhaps this, is, this process has advanced the furthest. You have what are called human rights tribunals, which you can be dragged before uh, after somebody complains against you, be forced to pay thousands of dollars in legal costs, and have to put up with this tribunal, which is not part of the legal system for months and months and months. Now, of course, there are some differences. The reigning dominant uh, regime ideology today in Western societies is not communism. Uh, it is instead a hybrid of liberal ideas, combining I liberal ideas of tyranny of the majority and protection of minorities with uh, culturalized versions of socialist ideas around oppressed groups and oppressor groups. So it's a new hybrid ideology that I term left modernism. So left modernism is the ideology of the regime and it is increasingly brooking no opposition and is increasingly willing to use the disciplinary mechanisms uh, of society to ensure conformity to orthodoxy. Now the epicenter of left modernist activism is the university system. Um, and from no platformings to bias response teams, speech codes to uh, politically motivated retractions of journal articles, the university has led the way in this kind of internal uh, censorship and activism. But it's not something that is simply confined to universities anymore. As Andrew Sullivan, uh, the American, British American writer has written, we all live on campus now. Uh, the attempts to cancel J.K. Rowling's recent book for being transphobic is but one example. The putsch at the New York Times uh, by left modernist staffers to remove James Bennett, the opinions editor who published an op-ed by the Republican Senator Tom Cotton, uh, is another example of this. Um, but of course, a, a left modernist activist, the typical retort we'll often get is, well, these are a bunch of high-profile news stories. There are a few anecdotes. By and large, we've got free speech. What's the problem? 
Well, let's actually let's look a little closer at representative survey data and see that to see that in fact what we've got is a much more widespread problem. YouGov and Cato did a survey earlier this year that found that 62% of Americans agreed with the following statement. The political climate these days prevents me from saying things I believe because others might find them offensive. That figure is up from 58% in 2017. So majority of the US population is agreeing with that statement. Now, if you look at conservatives and Republicans, Republicans with a master's degree or a doctorate degree, 60% of them said that they were worried about losing their job or their job prospects if their political opinions became known to their employers. Now, you might say that's being paranoid, but actually it's being pretty rational because the same survey found that 51% of those who identified as strong liberals and nearly 40% of those who identified as Democrats would say, said that a business executive who donated to Donald Trump's political campaign should be fired from their position. So this is actually quite a rational position to hold. Now, it is most advanced in the United States and Canada, but it is not only there. In Britain, um, uh, uh, um, the, I did a, uh, a co-authored a report uh, with Policy Exchange on academic freedom in the UK, and we con conducted uh, the most extensive survey of um, British academics, and we found that just two in ten leave supporting academics in this country would feel comfortable expressing that opinion to colleagues, even though 52% of the country voted uh, for leave. Now, I was in the 48%, but still, I think it's pretty scandalous that only two in ten of those leave-supporting academics feel comfortable. Among students, it's only four in 10 leave-supporting students who would feel comfortable expressing that view in the classroom. Half of conservative academics admit to self-censoring in their work, and that rises to 70% in studies I've done in the United States. Um, now, why is this the case? Well, again, I think it's fairly rational, because one in three UK academics would not hire a known leave-supporter for a job. And that rises to almost four in 10 among social sciences and humanities academics. The same or higher levels of discrimination occur with regard to right-leaning journal articles, um, grant applications, and promotion applications. And so it is perfectly rational for those who hold unorthodox views to keep them pretty quiet. That self-censorship is one of the greatest threats we face to academic freedom in the West. But perhaps, most ominous, I would say, is the age profile of opinion on a lot of these issues. When it comes to the clash between free speech and emotional safety, younger people are increasingly on the side of emotional safety against free speech. So, for example, if we take that Cato YouGov study on whether um, an executive who donates to Donald Trump should be fired, um, Amongst the under 35s, twice as many say that as amongst the over 55s. In a 2017 Cato Institute survey, a majority of Democrats supporting students were in favor of banning speakers across a wide range of controversial topics. So for example, 54% of Democrat students would ban a speaker who says all illegal immigrants should be deported. That's just one example. In Britain, things aren't much better. Uh, in our two 2019 survey um, for our first academic freedom report of over 500 UK students, uh, we found that students by a margin of 43 to 30 favored the uh, decision not to, uh, the decision to re rescind Jordan Peterson's um, fellowship at the School of Divinity here. Yeah. 
And by a margin of 43 to 33, they favored the no platforming of Jermaine Greer. Now, is free speech dead? Um, what I would argue is that what Greg Lukianoff calls the free speech culture, which ultimately underpins uh, a regime of free speech, is dying. Now, most speech is, of course, not under threat. You can support Manchester United or Liverpool. You can argue that states are motivated by ideas or interests. Those are uncontroversial. But anything that touches on the sacred values of today's left modernist ideological regime around race, gender, sexuality, free speech is on life support. According to Pete, uh, Professor Keith Stanovich, a number of topics are now out of bounds in academia, and that damages policy. Whether or not some cultures promote human flourishing more than others, whether or not men and women have different interests and proclivities, whether or not culture affects poverty rates, whether or not the gender wage graph is largely due to factors other than discrimination, whether or not race-based admissions policies have unintended consequences, whether or not traditional masculinity is useful to society, whether crime rates vary between the races, these are all topics on which the modern university has dictated the conclusion before the results of the investigation are in, just two seconds. So if you put a foot wrong in any of these hot button areas around the key sacred values of society, you lose friends, maybe your job, maybe your reputation. The temptation to stretch the meanings of these terms to shut people down is very enticing. The right to question orthodoxy is not yet lost, but it is arguably a minority position amongst millennials, less so amongst Gen Z. This is quite interesting. Eric, I Therefore, we I need, urge you. Need to wrap things up. Okay, free speech is not dead yet, but it is dying, and therefore I urge you to vote for the motion. Thank you.